Anything going on today? I was asked as uh, I was outside and people were coming into the church, I was asked whether this was a 49er red or if this was Kansas City Chiefs red. And I don't know, I don't know. But uh, I, was, I was trying to see if there was anything in Scripture that would give us an idea concerning the outcome of the game. And, you know, I was looking up the, the word chief, and in the Old Testament there's a story, maybe you remember it, of uh, how Joseph was in prison and he could interpret dreams. And there were a couple of other guys in prison. There was a chief butler and the chief baker who were in prison and they each had a dream and Joseph was able to interpret the dream of these two guys. But I don't think that has anything to do with who's going to win Super Bowl because it depends on whether you think the 49ers are, you know, I'm sorry, the Chiefs are Chief Butlers or Chief Bakers, right? Because it's a different outcome. But then I thought, well, maybe there's something in Scripture about the 49ers. Maybe I can find a, a verse about 49. And I went, no, I struck out. But then I realized 49 is, is short for 1849, right? Because that was the beginning of the gold rush. Am I right with that? And so I thought, okay, how many verses are there in the Bible where it's chapter 18, verse 49? I looked through the entire Bible. There's only one, and I want to read it for you here. I'm getting weird stares by some people here, but I just want you to know I'm not rooting for anyone in particular. This, But don't talk to my wife because she has a team that she's rooting for. But Psalm 18... 49, therefore I will praise you among the nations, O Lord, I will sing praises to your name. So is that a sign that the 49ers are going to win? No, people might praise the Lord if they lose, so there's really no insight there, one way or the other, whether the 49ers are, but you know, the main thing is, that verse says that we're here to praise the Lord, amen, and the Lord is a lot more important than football, I know some of you might think that's heresy, but no. no. The Lord is, did I, did I get an amen from anyone on that one? I'm getting a, an amen from that. Well, we're going to study today uh, the, what the Bible says about spiritual freedom. True freedom is freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. Let me say that again. True spiritual freedom is freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. And the third chapter of Philippians starts with what I call bookends. It starts with two warnings, as it was starts and ends with two warnings concerning two different groups of people. And these groups of people, even though they were opposite, had this one thing in common. They both claimed to be Christian, but they weren't. At the beginning of the chapter, and this is a bit of a review, Paul warned against people that he called dogs, wicked men, mutilators of the flesh. And he warned against what we now call Judaizers or legalists. And they said that grace is not sufficient. You have to add to God's grace your own human effort. You, uh, you must try to keep the law the same way that the Jews tried to keep the law. And you know what? That's a, a prescription for failure. 
It's false doctrine. And uh, maybe you've noticed how in life the pendulum oftentimes swings from one extreme to the other extreme. And I'm not talking about old school clocks here. But at the end of chapter 3, the pendulum swings to the other extreme position, another group that Paul warns us not to follow. It's been called by various names. It's been called libertines. It's been called antinomians, which literally means against law. And um, that, uh, that it's also called people who use grace as a license to sin. It's been said that there is no greater or more graphic warning given in Scripture than the one that Paul gives at the end of Philippians 3. And it's totally relevant today. You see, the danger of legalism, that was the first warning at the beginning of Philippians 3. The danger of legalism is far less today than the pervasive danger of antinomianism. And let's read Philippians 3, 17 through 21. I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. For I have told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. Their future is eternal destruction. Their God is their appetite. Some of your translations use the word belly. They brag about shameful things, and all they think about is this life here on earth. But we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. He will take these weak, mortal bodies of ours and change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same mighty power that he will use to conquer everything Everywhere. Now, Paul begins this warning with a positive example. He doesn't say, avoid this, avoid that. He says, follow my example. And, and we know that he was not an egotist, that he was not proud. Uh, there's a parallel verse in 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 that says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And, and so Paul was... Uh, was saying, uh, you know, Jesus is the standard. Jesus is the example. And he also included other people in his his example. He didn't say, just follow me, but he said, our example. And so the pattern of Christ's likeness included Timothy and also included Epaphroditus. We covered that in chapter 2 of Philippians. But it also includes every believer who sets a solid spiritual example. Every believer who's following Christ, they can be our example. Follow them. Follow their good example because God put them there in your life for a reason. He gives you an example so that you can follow in their steps. And I want you to keep this in mind that that, uh, this is not a game of perfect. I often say golf is not a game of perfect. That's why I like to watch golf on TV. Besides putting me to sleep on Sunday afternoon for a nice little nap, it's kind of fun to watch, and this is kind of bad for me to say this, but it's kind of fun to watch pros who spent countless hours learning to be experts in a game, and every once in a while they hit this goofy, goofy shot that anybody can hit. 
Golf is not a game of perfect. But finding an example of someone to follow is not a game of perfect because um, there's no perfect person. Everybody has weaknesses. However, we can find people who are strong in areas that we're weak in, and we can follow their example in that area of strength. You know, if I could give advice to younger people, maybe if you could give advice to younger people, maybe your kids, maybe your grandkids, I can think of no greater advice than this. Find someone who's a good good example and step where they step and follow in their tracks. Follow their lead. I don't know about you, but when I see someone who shows me how to do something, I get the confidence I can do it too. But sometimes if you just read instructions, if you just read directions or whatever, it's kind of fuzzy, it's hard to connect the dots, and you know, I wonder what that means. But if you see someone do it, then you say, well, if, you know, if they can do it, I can do it too. You know, I came across an uh, illustration, a story by Harold Reynolds. I don't know who this guy is. He's a, a, a one-time all-star second baseman for the Seattle Mariners of bygone years. So Dave uh, Lombard is a baseball fan. Maybe he recognizes the name. He, he's giving me the sign that he does. But, but uh, Harold Reynolds said this. He said, when I was growing up in Corvallis, Oregon, there was an NBA player named Gus Williams. Gus tied his shoes in back instead of in front like normal. I thought that was so cool. So I started tying my shoes in back. I wanted to be like Gus. He wore... Number 10, so I wore number 10. He wore one wristband, so I wore one wristband. But then one day I was lying in bed and my stomach was killing me, and I noticed that it wasn't my sports hero, Gus Williams, who came to my room to take care of me. It was my mother. That's when I began to understand the difference between heroes and role models. I stopped looking at athletic accomplishments to determine who I wanted to pattern my life after. Instead, I tried to emulate people with strong character who were doing things of lasting value. There's a lot of wisdom in that. And uh, the point of that is who we look to oftentimes largely determine the kind of people that we become. So we should choose our heroes well, choose our examples well. Now, um, Paul said in the end of Philippians 3, he said, there are, there's a group of people to watch out for. He didn't use the title antinomians, but that's who he was talking about. He says, don't follow in their tracks. It's going to be really tempting to try and follow them because they're going to say that you can do anything that you want to do. You can sin just as much as you want because it's all going to be forgiven. And you might think, well, that's great. Uh, You know, I can have my cake and eat it too. I can use grace as a license to sin, as an excuse to sin. But these characters were abusing grace, pushing grace out of bounds. Remember what we said at the start? True freedom is freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. And so these lawless people were saying sin doesn't matter anymore. That grace has made sin obsolete. Just do what you want. Uh, what does the Bible say? What does God say? 
God says you reap what you sow. And that's true of Christians, too. You see, if you sow to your fallen flesh, you're going to reap a crop of corruption. Your life will be a stinking mess. Oh, oh no, no, that only happens to non-Christians. All my sins are forgiven. No, it happens to Christians, too. Carnal Christians who feed their old flesh with all of its rotten desires will end up ruining their lives. Now, they may go to heaven. You know, yeah, their sins are forgiven. But their life is going to be a total mess down here on this planet. Paul made it clear that the call to follow Christ is a call to live a holy life. Romans 6, 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase, that grace may abound? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So we need to keep in mind, always keep in mind, a very important truth. And the important truth is, is this, that the cross is God's great expression of two realities, not just one. Oftentimes we think it's an expression of only one reality. No, it's an expression of two realities. You see, the number one reality is the cross is a great expression of God's love and his forgiveness. We know that. And that's what has drawn us to the Christian faith. But we need to also pay attention to the second uh, great truth and and that's the, the cross is, is God's great expression of judgment on sin. Because Jesus, when he was on the cross, he suffered God's wrath for sin. It wasn't his sin, it was our sin. God showed us how he feels about our sin. And, and Jesus didn't die, like I said, for his sin because he had none. And that's why he could be the perfect sacrifice and take our place on the cross. And he was tormented for our sins when they were laid on him. So the cross condemns what the world values. The cross condemns what the world values. Now, how does this apply to the group of antinomians, these sin promoters, these people who said, you can just let your old nature have a field day as often as you like, and, and Paul called these characters enemies of the cross. Why did Paul call them that? Because they refused to live a crucified life. They refused to follow the footsteps of our crucified Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, the antinomians refused to live by the cross. And we're called to live by the cross. Do I get an amen with that? If we're Christians, we don't just follow Christ. We are crucified. We, we let our old life, our selfish nature be crucified. Jesus put it very clearly. He said, if any man will come after me, if any man will follow me, let him what? He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And so these antinomians, these lawless people who claim to be Christians believed in a version of Christianity that left out self-denial and left out 
carrying your cross. Now, let me ask you this. Is that a problem today? Is that a danger today? You betcha. Amen? Paul called these people enemies of the cross, but he also said their God was their belly, their human appetites, and they lived simply to fulfill their sensual pleasures. They set their mind on earthly things. Their true religion, even though they claimed to be Christians, was if it feels good, do it. And it broke Paul's heart. He said that he was crying tears over these people. You know, it's ironic that in this epistle of joy, and the book of Philippians is an epistle of joy, a letter of joy, but in this epistle of joy, we see Paul crying. He wasn't crying for himself. He was crying because if the antinomians continued down the path that they were on, it would lead to their eternal destruction. And so we see the, the heart of God here. We see that, that uh, Paul sets an example we need to follow. We, we need to have such a heart of compassion for the lost that Paul demonstrates here. Mark 8, 36 through 37 uh, speaks about this. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? Do you know any people who are pursuing the world, but they're on the path of losing their soul? That should break our heart. Amen? Well, Paul described it from an, an eternal perspective. Uh, these antinomians, these grace abusers, were living just for the world. They were living to gratify their bodies with sensual pleasures. And... Um, they lost sight of the fact that this world is not our home. This world is not our home. You know, there's a lot of uh, things on TV about uh, how to improve your house, you know, uh, HGTV, you know, and, and you know, redoing you know, houses that are trashed and making, turning them into what? Forever homes. Well, it doesn't matter how messed up our houses are on this planet, although it's nice to live in a house that's nice, nice and tidy and isn't falling apart, but our forever home is where? It's not here on this earth, it's in heaven. And uh, you know, that uh, reminds me of a song. And I have to say uh, a, sh a shout out here to Alex. Good job, new song, good. I think the people were able to you know, learn that pretty quickly and also, we haven't finished the service yet, but we're going to be doing two hymns today that Alex chose. That's fantastic, isn't it? And I really like the last hymn we're going to do. But there's, there's one hymn that really fits into this point that I'm making. This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home. Oh, you've heard that song. You've heard that. That's good. Um, you know, the, this world is not our home. We have a dual citizenship. How many of you are citizens of the United States of America? Can I see your hands? I think pretty much everyone. Not everyone raised their hand because they don't like to raise their hand. But we're, we're all citizens of the USA. But did you know that we're actually citizens of the kingdom of heaven? That heaven really is our forever 
citizenship. And that our citizenship here in America is just temporary because one day we're going to die. We're not going to be a citizen of the United States anymore when we die. And we're really ambassadors of heaven here on earth. And that means that we represent heaven's values and we just demonstrate by our lives heavenly conduct, how, to li- how people in heaven would live here on earth. And a heavenly conversation, our speech is characterized by how uh, people in heaven would speak. That's our job here on this planet. We represent heaven in a fallen world. Now, this group that Paul strongly warned against said, um, and, and, and Paul said, you know, don't follow this group. They're not good examples. You know, I, I, follow me. I'm, a, I'm an example of a person who's following Christ. But, but these people were putting their bodies first. They live for the flesh. But our old flesh is like what? A tent that gets folded up and put away. And one day we're going to be folded up and put away. And these bodies aren't going to last forever. But... We're going to receive a new resurrection body that will last forever. It'll be like the Lord's resurrection body. It will be new in and out, through and through, and we'll get them as soon as the Lord comes back in the rapture. We're going to meet them. Every eye will see them. We're going to meet them in the air, and we're going to receive forever bodies. Now, I'm excited because when I get my new body, I'm not going to be afraid of flying anymore. Because I want to meet the Lord in the air. So uh, Paul concentrated on that eternal perspective, on his eternal home, on his eternal body that he was going to get. And, and, and when we do that, that never fails to put uh, life, this life, in the proper perspective. And that's another way that we can follow Paul's example. Paul set the example because he cried tears of of uh, sorrow, the thought of people who are going to spend eternity in hell. We need to do that. And we also need to keep our eyes fixed on our eternal home and realize that uh, our eternal destiny is heaven. You know, it's been said, though, that some, some uh, Christians are so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good. How many of you have heard that expression before? Yeah, some people are so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good. Well, you know, that was really true of yesteryear, but I think the pendulum has swung to another extreme, and I think some Christians, or maybe even many Christians, are so earthly-minded, they're no heavenly good. That's a problem today. They use grace as a license to sin. That's a prevalent problem. So what's the solution? Romans 12, 1 through 2, it says that... uh, Uh, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. That's what the Ananomians were doing. They were letting their lives conform to the pattern of this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Lord, my body is at your service. It's available to you. And use it to do whatever would bring uh, honor and, and it would please you. That's the attitude of people who are 
putting Christ first in their lives and not putting the flesh first. I like what Paul said in Colossians 3, 2. He said, set your mind on things, what? Above. Not on earthly things. And that was a problem with the antinomians. They were setting their mind. It was totally fixed on earthly things. I want to summarize, I'm sorry, I want to finish with a a contrast between two Old Testament characters. I think you'll know them uh, when I mention their names. The first was Lot. When I think of Lot, I think of a man who lost a lot. He lost everything. You know the story of Lot? You know, he, he was a nephew, I think, of, of Abraham, and Abraham lived up in the mountains. You know, their, their herds were getting so large, they, there wasn't room for both of their, the, them to live together. And so, you know, Abraham being a, a man of grace, he said, uh, uh, Lot, you pick the area where you want to live and I'll pick the other area. If you want to be the, in the plain, that's fine and, and I'll pick the mountains. And Lot said, yeah, I'll take the plain. Life is easier in the plain. And unfortunately, the plain was near Sodom and Gomorrah. And it was, it was easier, it was more comfortable, but it was also uh, vile and wicked and a lot of sin. And uh, you know the story of Lot, how he just moved closer and closer to Sodom. And he actually became an elder, if you will, or a, a city official of Sodom, like a judge. And you know how the judgment of God fell upon Sodom and Angel went to, to Lot and said, hey, get out of here. Judgment's going to fall. And he lost everyone. He lost his wife. His wife looked back. She missed all the, the, the pleasures, all of the comforts of civil, civilization. And she looked back and it says, the Bible says she turned into a pillar of salt. And basically, Lot, all he had was his daughters and himself. He lost all of his, his sheep, all of his herds, all of his servants, his houses, everything. Lost it all. He lost a lot. That's a person who has wrong priorities. But contrast that with Moses. Moses was willing to give up his earthly goods to put God first in his life. And he finished the race strong. In Hebrews 11, 24 through 26, it describes his life. It says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Think about how rich his life was. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God. They were slaves in Egypt, and they were mistreated. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Anonomians, they lived life like Lot. We're called to live like Moses. Put God first. You see, the pleasures of sin frustrate God's purpose of grace. And Paul said, that's not the example I set for you. I'm living by grace. And as you know, the book of Romans is an explanation of how we're saved by grace. But in Romans 12, 1 through 2, which we quoted, 
It, it shows us how to apply the salvation grace to our lives and how to live by that grace. And that's where we make ourselves living sacrifices. We make ourselves available to God for God to use our bodies to his purpose. But like I said, the pleasures of sin frustrate God's purpose of grace. And uh, there's another example to, to follow, and that's to... Instead of just using grace as a license to sin, use grace as a, a means to overcome sin. God's grace includes grace and power to overcome sin. Salvation is not just justification. There's three tenses to salvation, past, present, and future. It's not just justification, which means forgiveness. That's the past. It also includes sanctification, which is the present. That's power over sin. And it leads to the future glorification. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. That's salvation. And that's what Paul is, is uh, stressing for us, stressing for the Philippians. Don't follow people who use grace as a license to sin. It's just, it's a horrible way to live. It'll lead to... Uh, a terrible mess. Anyway, I've, I've talked a long time about this. Dave will wrap this up for us. He'll summarize it so that it'll, he'll bring it home for us. Bring it home, brother. I like that Dave talked about Super Bowl and football, a little bit about baseball. But for me, the greatest thing about the Super Bowl is it's the last hurdle before baseball. So now we can, baseball, the floor is yours. We talked a lot in our Sunday school class on James, which if you're not coming to, you're missing out. <clears throat> okay, Bruce. And uh, we talked about faith and works. And after I've been uh, reading the Bible and following Christ for 50-some-odd years, it's always about balance. You can't just have faith. You can't just have works. And that's a lot about what this, what this passage is about, too. And that's why baseball is better than football. <laughs> because everybody on the baseball team has to be able to hit and catch and throw and run. Football is really specialized. And Many of you will remember Logan Mankins. Logan Mankins was a Mariposa County football player who went on to play for the Patriots. Logan had one job. I know Jeremiah is going to straighten me out after this is over. <laughs> Logan's job was to get in the way. He was a tackle or a guard tackle. So his job was to get in the way. He weighed 300 pounds. He was really strong. He was really good at getting in the way, but that was his job, to get in the way. And I actually learned a little bit more about football when Logan went. But a baseball player has to have multiple skills, with the exception of a few things, but for the most part. So that's what I wanna remember about this message today, is we have to do a little bit of both. We have to have works and we have to have faith. It isn't just one thing, it's about the balance.